0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour for the Bible Line. So glad that you can join us. We know uh, we have many first-time listeners, and if you've just tuned into this broadcast for the next hour, we will be taking questions that you may have in relationship to your understanding of a Bible passage or maybe some issue in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on. Again, locally, you can reach us at 843 525 1859, or for our internet users, we have a toll free number 877. The call letters of the station WAGP 980, or as many do, you can uh, email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, standing for the Bible Line, tbl at wagp dot net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. So let's go ahead and get started. I think we already have a caller waiting.
0: We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line.
1: Good morning, Pastor. Um, I have a question that I'm going to get off the line. In Genesis, I think it's the second chapter, I think around the first verse, when you say that God made the, the earth was finished and the heavens. So that mean that he'll make it heaven and earth at the same time? Can you uh, clarify that for me? Okay, so um, it was coming in kind of clouded there. Your question was from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I think it's the second chapter, when he said the heavens and the earth is now finished. Oh yeah, thus, yeah, yeah, thus, yes, yeah, I've got it here. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts, and by the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, liberal theologians have argued, of course, that there are contradictions throughout the Bible, and they say, well, there's two creation accounts, and there's not. There's just a, there's one creation account, uh, but one chapter, namely Genesis 2, further defines some issues that aren't explained in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis one, you have the actual days of creation, the six days of creation and what was made on each day. So for instance, we read in verse three of Genesis one, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light uh, day and the darkness night, evening and morning uh, one day Uh, again day two God uh, created an expanse he separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse Uh, God God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day so on the second day God created heaven Uh, you have a summary statement so to speak uh the heaven meaning the sky or so what the heavens the term is used in different ways in two one use when it says thus the heavens and the earth were completed uh, he's not saying for instance that the the heaven was created the sky when god created this expanse uh that that happened at the end no that happened on the second day But in Genesis 2, 1, you have kind of a summary statement. Thus, the heavens and the earth, all that God made in these six days was completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. So it's just like God created man on the sixth day. But in Genesis 2, God describes how he created man and uh, how he made Adam and uh, took from his side a rib and found a helper suitable for him. Uh, That's not a second creation account. It's just a further explanation of what he did on day six. So uh, 2-1 is kind of a summary statement. Of uh, all six days of creation. But what happened on each day of creation is clearly separated out in days one through six in Genesis chapter one.
0: Very good. 843 525 1859. Toll free 877 924 7980. Or you can email us at net. And uh, our next uh, listener also had a question about uh, some biblical accounts that. Uh, uh, seem to differ what hist- with what history may say. Uh, historically, we know that uh, Herod uh, died in 4 B.C., at least that's what historians tell us. But how can that be since Herod had all the boys killed when he heard that Christ was born? Uh, and this listener would like to know exactly where do we get B.C., the calendar, from?
1: Well, it's a good question. And so you're thinking in your mind, well, let's see. Uh, before Christ, A.D., on Domini, in the year of the Lord. And so Jesus was born in, you know, uh, year one or year zero. There's really no year zero, but you're probably thinking in your mind he was born in year one, and therefore, uh, you know, this happened in the first year of his life, you know, 1 A.D., and how is it that uh, Herod, you know, uh, who lived in 4 B.C. and reigned during that time, and there's good historical evidence to demonstrate that, how is it that this could have happened You know, five years prior? Well, because remember, the, the BC-AD uh, separation is something that comes a few centuries after Jesus Christ steps into the world. And so uh, the, the calendars, and there's a couple of different calendars, the Gregorian calendar, the Julian calendar, and it gets really pretty complex when you, when you study the issue. But it doesn't work out perfect, not because of a biblical issue, but because of a man issue, the way man constructed the calendar. And this is a whole message and talking in and of itself. And I suppose you might want to just do some studies on how we received our calendar. But when it was all said and done and the separation was made, you've got Christ being born in the B.C. years. Some would say 3 B.C., some would say 4 B.C., Most would argue for the 4 BC year in light of not only uh, when we know Herod reigned, but some uh, specific events that took place during that reign and the year of his death. When you match those together, it brings you to about 4 BC. So it gets very complex when people initially make some calendars. There, they have certain assumptions that they don't have information for. And then once they gather that information and things are tweaked, then the datings actually change. And so that, that's what's going on. But no, it, it happened in 4 BC uh, based on the chronology that we have now. But that's not a contradiction of anything that's taught in the Bible. It's just an issue of how man initially created the calendars. There have been times, like for instance, in the 16th century where uh, one of the popes realized that um, we were off 11 days. And he was actually right. Uh, the calendar was off eleven days, and so they had to tweak the calendar and make some changes because they were learning more and more. And now we have, you know, um, uh, NASA, you know, computers and everything else that can show us precisely where we are, what what is happening, in, in those kinds of things. All
0: right. Very good. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. Toll free. 877 924 wagp and uh, you have a question here from Hannah, who would like to know, are winking and bribing condemned in the Bible? I know winking flirtatiously or slyly is bad, but what about cute winking such as uh, emoji faces? And, and as for <laughs> bribing, right. uh, just bribing others in general to do something they need to do but don't want to do, is that
1: bad? Well, it's a good question. Context is everything, isn't it? And so winking is described really in in two ways in the scripture. Uh, I've just turned to Proverbs 6. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, so we have one to read for each day of the month. And so in Proverbs 6, we read in the, uh, here it is, the uh, 13th verse, um, a worthless person, a wicked man is the one who walks with a false mouth who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. So first of all, there are malicious links, and there's two or three places in the Proverbs where that is highlighted, where a person is quote-unquote winking because he has an evil intent that he's communicating to, to someone else. And though the word is not specifically used in this way, the eyes are in terms of what we would call uh, a sexual wink. Uh, For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor watch or let her catch you with her eyelids. So he's talking about a woman who uses her eyes uh, seductively in order to lure a man. And of course, it could work the other way as well. But since men largely respond to sight first, that's usually what is emphasized, where a woman is usually seduced through emotions. In either case, um, God speaks against them. That, that's different from um, a harmless emoji week, a wink, as you might say. So everything has a context. And it can be used, I suppose, positively or, uh, or negatively. And the two negative expressions of winking in the Bible is a seductive sexual wink or an evil uh, wink where a person is devising some malicious evil Cause that he's signaling to his friend about. But good question. I appreciate that.
0: All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question this morning on this uh, edition of The Bible Line, Emmanuel from Houston, Texas, would like to get your opinion on the recent policy change within the last year that Dallas Theological Seminary now allows the moderate use of alcohol. Why does it seem like we are continuing to reflect more of the world? He writes, what are your thoughts? I'm not uh, superb with knowledge of the scriptures. I'm growing, but I do think this is dangerous, misguided, and unfortunate.
1: It really is, and it saddened me when that policy uh, was made official. In fact, I had written the president or copied him on a letter in reference to Moody Bible Institute, uh, thinking that maybe he would express some concern Little did I know that he was planning himself, to, like Moody Bible Institute, to change the policy on alcohol. Uh, Moody had had that policy for a hundred plus years, in reference to Dallas Seminary since their inception in 1928, when they were initially called the Evangelical Theological Seminary, and a couple of years later uh, they became Dallas Theological Seminary. But from their inception. Uh, they were against uh, the use of alcohol. And I will say in fairness to different Bible teachers and many of whom have graduated from Dallas seminary and and some of the greatest Bible teachers uh, came out of Dallas seminary. Uh, Jay Vernon McGee used to have a weekly uh, radio show daily broadcast went five days a week. He was a Dallas seminary graduate. He was actually in the first class of Dallas seminary. And there are hosts of great Bible teachers who've come from that school in virtually all of them until really the recent, (coughs) excuse me, 10, 15 years held to the same position that the use of beverage alcohol is something that a Christian shouldn't participate in. And again, in fairness to different people, they get there in different ways. Some would argue simply, well, it has the appearance of evil in our day. And certainly it's an evil industry. Uh, They do more to, uh, promote sexual immorality through the use of alcohol than probably any other single industry I can think of. Beyond that, appearance of evil, and sometimes certainly um, someone can be doing something that's innocent, but it appears to be evil. And today, when most people drink, they drink for one reason, to get a little bit of high. Maybe maybe rip roaring drunk, I'm going out to get drunk tonight. Or maybe uh, they are just wanting to relieve tension in their life, and they use it through this um, means of alcohol. And uh, so you have to be careful. Some things are not evil, but they appear to be evil. So let me illustrate that in relationship to alcohol. Because so many people today drink just to get buzzed. Uh, If a Christian were to even hold a can of beer or drink a glass of wine, a lot of people would put them into that same category. So that in and of itself has the appearance of evil. Certainly another reason not for drinking is we're to do nothing that would cause our brother to stumble. And so God's word is very clear on that. Uh, whatever you do, you're not to do it in a way that someone might imitate your behavior and cause you to stumble. And that's a bad thing. And, and God uh, doesn't like it when a Christian takes liberty Uh, and causes someone else to stumble because they're following their example. So someone, if they came to my house and they said, well, Pastor Brogy has a glass of wine with his pasta or, you know, or he had a beer in his refrigerator and he's a godly man. And if he can have a beer, I guess I can too. And let's just argue again, this is one of the the older arguments that was used. Uh, Many young Christians, maybe who do not have self-control, might mimic a pastor or someone that they considered to be godly. And as a result, they don't have one beer, they have three and they're buzzed out of their minds. Uh, Then uh, in addition to having the appearance of evil, in addition to causing a brother to stumble, um, God tells us that whatever we do, we are to do for the glory of God. And you really have to ask, you know, is the alcohol industry an industry that glorifies God, I think not. Somebody says, "Well, then I won't use them. I'll just make my own alcohol." Well, I don't think that's legal in the United States. Uh, so you, you get into all kinds of issues. But beyond that, and I think some of the best arguments, like the president of Dallas Theological Seminary—not the current president, but the uh, Doctor John Walford, who is the president when I was there—and then Bill Campbell followed him. Uh, Those two presidents, for instance, like all the preceding presidents, argue that alcohol, as it's packaged today, is strong drink. And clearly, not only does God condemn drunkenness in Scripture, He condemns the use of strong drink. And of course, before you can ask, how does a text apply to my life, I always first have to ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And so how would early believers... Uh, In the first century, how would Jewish people in the Old Testament era understand the prohibition to use strong drink? Well, they would not have put into their mind whiskey and rum and the distilled alcohols that come almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed. But they would have put into their minds when they heard that term, the idea of uh, fermented wine or beer. And fermented wine or a beer was considered strong drink. And logically, I mean, that just makes sense. If you've ever experimented with alcohol and you've had a glass of wine or a beer for the first time in your life, you're buzzed. Look, if you're buzzed, you're, you're drunk. Even, even the law says that buzzed drinking, I mean, buzz driving is drunk driving. Even the law recognizes that. And so the first time someone has a glass of wine or a, or a can of beer, they're flying They are buzzed. That's what it does to you. And they are therefore in violation of the greatest of all the commandments. Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments responded very succinctly that you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And so someone is in violation of breaking the greatest of all the commandments when they drink. And I know how Christians reason today, they say, well, you know, um, I don't, get that buzz from one glass of wine you know it might take me four or five to get that kind of buzz well that wasn't true the first time you had a glass of wine well I've built up a resistance where it doesn't affect me like that well does God want you to cause others to stumble by your example does he want you to abstain from the appearance of evil and certainly does God want you to be drunk for a while I mean the question is what's drunk you know, in, in is my goal to see how close I can get to sin without sinning? Or is my goal, how far can I stay away from sin to live holy? Well, hopefully the latter. And so if that's your desire to please God and obey God, then you would, I think, abstain from, from alcohol. So when I listen to Mark Bailey, whom I'm deeply disappointed in now, is the president of Dallas Seminary. Um, Someone asked me if he could come, and he wanted to come and speak at Community Bible Church. I said, he's not coming. He's not going to step in my pulpit. Absolutely not. He is making compromises now in other realms and in other areas. So I'm I'm very disappointed. And a lot of uh, our alumni from Dallas Seminary are very disappointed. He said, well, we needed to update our you know, doctrinal statement and give some of our professors and students freedom to use alcohol in moderation. That's just stupid. That's just really, really stupid. And what Moody Bible Institute did was stupid. It was godless to say, well, it's okay now for faculty to drink, smoke and gamble in moderation. See, what they're doing is they're trying to attract the new theologues to their seminary as faculty who would say, well, we're not going to come to Dallas Seminary if, you know, we can't have a glass of wine with dinner. And, uh, you know, we're not going to come to some legalistic institution. And so the only way they can attract these younger guys is by changing their standards. And that's terrible. I was speaking to one of uh, the professors recently. I was at a meeting in Washington and I said, you know, what, what's going on here? And it wasn't in relationship to the alcohol issue. It was a relationship to another issue with um, what we call complementarian versus egalitarian issues. So what, what's going on, Timothy, with some of these um, speakers who are coming in to this seminary that is, you know, going against the standard that Dallas Seminary almost had for 100 years? He said, look, Carl, he said, I am the only preaching professor who will not allow women in my classes where there's a mixed audience because then I have a woman teaching over a man. Now if I had all in the, women in the class that's one thing. But to have women and men in a mixed class I'm the only preaching professor left who will not have a mixed group because I am committed to obeying the scripture. But again, this is considered legalistic in our day. Schools are bending their policies. It's driven a lot by so-called scholarship. I don't need those kinds of scholars at a seminary. If some professor is going home, and, and, you know, and I, I just don't know Christians who use alcohol who cannot honestly say that they've used too much at one time. You know, that that's the reality of it. And it's a terrible thing. And, you know, I know churches that are giving way on this and pastors who are loosening their standard and young people are following their example. I can think of a family right now who is influenced by a church in Savannah where the pastor loosened his view on alcohol and now one of their members has a problem because of his teaching. Uh, it, it's just a big mistake. So anyway, so I'm disappointed with Dallas Seminary, obviously, Um I'm almost at the point where I'm just going to say to people, look, I, I don't think you, if you're asking me for a recommendation to go there. We see a lot of people listen to me. Uh, they say, boy, I want to be an expository preacher. I need the tools. And so they go to Dallas. And we, we've got a number of guys in our church right now who are either uh, or who have been here in years past. I just got a letter the other day from... A uh, former, a Navy personnel guy. He he's lived up in Maine. He's moved to Dallas. He's going to seminary there, and of course, he's disappointed with some of the things he's seen. Um, so I I don't know what to say. I know the Master's Seminary, John MacArthur's, is still straight as an arrow in. He would take the same position that most Christian teachers have taken for a long, long time in, in church history. You might want to go to my website. I have two articles up there, one called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. It appeared in Christianity today in the 1970s. It would never appear there today. Another one by Dr. Norman Geisler in Bibliotheca Sacra. It's the oldest theological journey, journal printed in the United States. Uh, he wrote uh, a similar article, walking through historically, contextually, biblically, some of these issues on alcohol, what strong drink is, how we come to that decision, and so forth. And those are on the website at searchthescriptures.org. So let's go to the next question.
0: All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
1: Good morning, Dr. Bro. This is Anthony.
0: How are you doing this morning?
1: Hey, good. Thanks, Anthony.
0: Uh, I've got a question and a statement. Okay. Okay. Uh, Maybe you need to start a cBC seminary, and you'll keep it straight that way, hmm. okay uh, second one tell me now I believe I know, but I just want to make it clear when we when we talk about fasting, we mentioned fasting yes, what is going, what is going on with God when we are fasting, what is going on with the Lord Jesus Christ in reference to us? when we are fasting, is, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's crazy. Or it's not saying that fasting is fasting carrying more weight than just prayer when you're not fasting. What is going on, uh, I would say, in the mind of God when we fast? And what should be going on with us when we are fasting? Especially That's when the, yeah. the Bible also speaks about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. And um,
1: I'll back okay? It's a good question. Um, Jesus said, and whenever you fast. So there is an assumption under the New Covenant that God's people will fast. Uh, now, in the Sermon on the Mount, he deals with three issues, fasting, giving, and prayer that are to be done not for the praise and recognition of men, but for the honor of God. But what is interesting with the three examples he gives of fasting praying and giving they're also public examples of all three so to say that someone should pray just in their closet and not with other christians obviously would violate what he teaches even in the lord's supper uh excuse me in the lord's prayer our father not my father but our father who art in heaven and so forth um give us this day our daily bread uh, that that is a prayer that is a, a model of what we would call corporate prayer and so you see the church corporately praying in acts 4 but of course if my only prayer life is a public prayer life then i need to take a look inside and to say you know what what's my motivation what's driving this ship same is true with giving you know there's public expressions of giving where for instance in acts 5 you have barnabas or Acts 4, the end of Acts 4, going into the fifth chapter with Ananias and Sapphira. But in Acts 4, you have Barnabas publicly giving. And, of course, it serves as a motivation to for others to give. Some responded to it wrongly for the praise of men. But there are public examples of giving, and there are many in the Old Testament as well. Jesus is not discounting that. Same with fasting. In Acts 13, there's a public expression of... Uh, of fasting. Uh, and again, the, the picture there is the church gathering. And I ask people maybe to, to consider praying and fasting with me a meal this week or a couple of meals this week, as uh, we have a special uh, Sunday coming up this coming Sunday. But what's going on in the heart is an important question. Well, fasting, among other things, is really a, it's a form of humbling yourself before God. And there are many passages of scripture that deal with this someone might want to listen if they want to study this i go through like eight reasons for fasting in a sermon i preached not that long ago on daniel chapter 10 because daniel is fasting before god he's broken of course over what's going on in the nation uh when you come to his fast in the 10th chapter or even in other places, you discover that there's a real brokenness in his heart over the sin of his own people. But uh, as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth and I humbled my soul with fasting, wrote King David in Psalm 35:13. So it's an expression of humility before God. And it has a way of intensifying your prayer life, which is what Acts 13 and Acts 14 illustrates. Well, why is that? Well, number one, you have a little more time to pray. If you're going to skip lunch today, then the time it would have taken to drive to the restaurant or to make a, you know, a ham sandwich or whatever, you won't need to do that. And you could spend that time either in prep or clean up or the actual eating of it in, in prayer. So there's an intensity of prayer. It's an expression of humility and among other things, it's really saying, God, you know, I we need you to move. We need you to work. And God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. So it's not something that you, you you're earning God's favor with. Sometimes you're seeking God for his will and wisdom. But I will say that when you skip a meal or two meals, or maybe you go through a 24-hour fast or whatever it is God leads you to do, And again, you know, I I recognize there may be some people who can't fast because of physical limitations that they have, but for the most part, most people can fast. And when you are fasting and you have that little hunger pain, whatever it is that you're seeking God for, it becomes a reminder to seek the Lord. And it, and it, you know, some of us are just chained to that refrigerator, and fasting has a way of kind of bringing things into perspective but I go through a very detailed teaching in some sermons I do in the book of Daniel and I would encourage people to maybe consider listening to those we've we've got we're backing up here so let me go to the next question
0: All right, very good yes we do indeed have another live caller let's go to them now if I can go ahead and drop there we go thanks for holding good morning you're on the Bible line Uh, good morning I was doing a study of Job And right out of the gate, I ran across something that jumped out to me that I'd never noticed before reading it, in verse 1-8, where the Lord says, you know, have you beheld my servant Job to Satan? And I was thinking about that jumped out at me because I know the Lord cannot tempt us from James' statement. But could you just speak to it? Because it almost seems like, well, the Lord is the one that instigated this. And, of course, the devil did the deed. And is it something that's compared to the difference between a
1: trial and a temptation or just, I don't know, do you see what I'm asking? No, I do. Uh, Obviously, God does not tempt us with evil. But Mm -hmm. Luther said it so well, he said, the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's devil. That is to mean the devil is under the sovereign hand of God Almighty. And so Satan can touch God's people only with God's permission. And whatever God does and whatever God allows, he allows for our good and his glory. It's for our good and his glory. And so sometimes, you know, of course, here in Job. Satan is basically saying, God, the only reason that your servant Job serves you is because you've bought him off. You've blessed him so much. And, you know, just take away some of these blessings and you'll see that he really doesn't love you like he says that he loves you. And so God allows Satan to do that very thing, to take away some of the many blessings that God had given him. And Job comes out shining. He he comes out really demonstrating that he is the man that God said he was. But whatever comes into our life, for whatever purpose it comes, it first must be filtered through this sovereign hand of God. And we know that no temptation, no trial has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And God will not allow us to be tested or tried. And the word temptation and trial is used interchangeably in the Bible. It's the same word, actually, in both Hebrew and in Greek. And so context determines it. In the old English of the King James, they didn't distinguish between that because they didn't have distinguishing words in the 17th century language. But we do in the 21st century language. And so if context determines, well, this is not a temptation, but this is a test, then we render it accordingly. If context uh, implies that this is a solicitation to evil, then we render it accordingly, not as a a test, but as a temptation. So God's word is very clear on this and uh, God tempts no one with evil, but the devil is God's devil and God allows things under his providential hand to happen. And it's always for our good and for his glory. Now we may not respond as we should, but again, I have a promise that I can respond as I ought, 1st Corinthians uh, 10, 12, and 13. Um, but if I don't, that's not God's fault. That's my fault. Good question. Let's go on to the next one.
0: All right. Very good. Thank you, caller. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on this morning's uh, Bible line. And Chuck from Portland, Maine writes... Could you provide a basic question to a list to ask pastors when searching for a new church? Our family is searching for a new church, and I'd like to know some direct questions I can ask of the pastors at the churches we visit to get their core beliefs and to be sure we're making a wise choice in where we ultimately go. I am finding it is... Uh, Difficult for me to read between the lines on where they stand, but I'm unsure of what I can ask to really nail them down on biblical Christian standards.
1: You know, it's it's a good question you're, you're raising here because, you know, we live in a day where pastors more and more have very few standards. And it's important that we as Christians, when we look for a new church home, that we are asking the right questions and we're seeking God's will on a church that would, you know, best suit our family. Um, So a starting place, I would say for certain, would be the whole issue of uh, the solas of the Reformation. That was a sermon I preached on last Sunday. Uh, Yesterday, October the 31st, was a very important day in the history of the church. It's what we call Reformation Day. And, of course, on October the 31st in 1517, Martin Luther attacked on the door 95 theses or assertions, not a thesis, but a uh 95 assertions where the church had deviated from biblical truth. And, of course, this became the start of the Protestant Reformation. And so beginning yesterday, we entered into the 500th year. And so... Churches on this past Sunday, what we call Reformation Sunday, all the way through Sunday of the next year, will be celebrating the 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. With that said, the solas are an important place to start. The solas are five Latin phrases that summarize the essence of Reformation theology, so Scripture alone. And so by Scripture alone, we're saying that our final authority is indeed the Bible, and the Bible, there must be an assumption, and this is where you probe on the level that you need to probe on when you uh, ask a pastor his belief, for instance, on the Scripture. Because a person can say he believes the Bible is the inspired word of God and means something entirely different from his definition of inspiration than you mean by it. And so in my course in Bibliology, I go through 10 views on inspiration. 10 different views that people have held in the last 2,000 years of what they mean by the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, even the word inerrancy. I had a group of men in my yard yesterday who were doing some cleanup work for me. And uh, these guys were um, actually uh, Baptists and from another state. People come from all over sometimes when a car- hurricane happens and they're from Illinois and one of the guys said, you know, this is like providential, you know, we're here at this pastor's home and they were actually looking for a new pastor for their growing church. And, and I said, well, what kind of questions are you asking? And they told me, I said, well, those are good, but those aren't very complete. And so I actually gave them a list of 28 questions that I comprised when we were looking for instance, for a pastor for our Aiken church And there are questions that I've asked of different people who I might hire for associate pastoral positions. And there are critical questions of that pastor. What does he mean by inspiration? And I told these guys, I said, you can't even go by the word inerrancy anymore because a man can say and write on his doctrinal statement that he believes in the inerrancy of the Bible. There's a local pastor who told me to my face that he doesn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, but he has it on his doctrinal statement at his website. because he's redefined inerrancy and so for instance your cooperative baptist churches affirm what's called functional inerrancy that is the bible is inerrant it's without error in its function to lead you to god or help you to live a good life but it's not inerrant in everything that it says Uh, yesterday a very popular woman blogger was called out because she officially endorsed uh, gay marriage, as long as it was monogamous gay marriage. See, that's a, that's, a, that's a different view of inerrancy and infallibility. And sometimes it's a view of uh, interpretation. So there are two issues that you want to certainly ask. One, what do you mean by inerrancy? And one of the things you want to hear is what's called verbal plenary inspiration, verbal is the 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 Greek word for or the Latin word for word. So when we speak of verbal plenary, plenary is full. A verbal, verbal plenary inspiration, we're saying that every single word right down to the letter is inspired. And by the way, that's the view of inspiration that Jesus believed and affirmed. He gives an argument for his deity on the tense of a verb. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he speaks of the smallest jot and tittle. Uh, and so uh, you can describe those in terms of <coughs> the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which would mimic our apostrophe in English. Jesus said right to the smallest Hebrew letter the scripture is inspired in, he described even the stroke of the pen. Uh, if you take the letter O, and the letter Q in the uh, printed form, the difference is one little stroke of the pen that forms the Q. And Jesus said that the scriptures were inspired right down to the stroke of a pen. So there are certain Hebrew letters, for instance, like Rosh and Daleth that are distinguished by just a little tiny, itsy bitsy stroke of the pen. So you're really beginning to probe. What does he mean? by the inspiration of scripture and also his principles for interpreting the scripture is important. So you can have people today who say they believe in verbal plenary inspiration, but they have an allegorical interpretation of the word of God. And I'll be studying this very carefully when we begin the book of revelation in our next calendar year because these are critical issues as to how we interpret the scripture, but it's not a mystery to me how I should interpret the Bible because God left within the scripture itself the way writers interact with other writers in the Bible of how to interpret And so we believe in the plain interpretation of the Bible or what sometimes is called the literal interpretation of the Bible or the historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Those are things you want to hear from a pastor's ears. That doesn't discount a symbol, but once the symbol's understood, then you literally interpret it in terms of the meaning of the symbol. So a grammatical, historical, plain interpretation of the Bible is what you're looking for. And then there are many other issues, you know, in terms of you know, in terms of health in a church, you know, do, do they try to win people to Christ? Look, if a church is not winning people to Christ, it's not a spirit-filled church, because there's a direct relationship between an individual, and you might on a broader scale, say a congregation or a local assembly, winning people to Jesus and being spirit-filled. And so if that church is not committed to bringing people to Christ, then they're really not walking in the spirit. And that church is going to be dead very often. Uh, There are gender issues that are important. You know, what's their view on the role of women in the church? Have they denigrated women by allowing them to be pastors? And that's a step down for a woman. If they've denigrated her by saying you can be a pastor of a church or a deacon in a church, you know, a leader over men where they end up forsaking a different call and a very high call that God has given women to be workers at home and to raise up the next generation of leaders for the church. So there's a lot of, you know, different issues that are, are, are going on and questions that you want to ask. We have a um, form that we created on how to find a healthy church and I'll see if I can email it to this person, what state, I think from Tennessee, they were, they were calling us today. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All Richard.
0: right, very good. Indeed, we've got a live caller. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Hi, my name is Jeanette. I, um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the book of Enoch. Is it true? Do we need to study it? And why wasn't it added to the Bible? Thank you.
1: Great question. So there's um, different kinds of literature. There's what we call apocryphal literature. And the apocryphal literature refers to books that were written between the Old and the New Testaments. And there's a number of books that are important historically, but they're not inspired. And we'll speak to that in just a moment. And then there's what we call pseudepigrapha. Pseudo is the word false. graphe we get our word writing. So when we speak of the pseudepigraphal books, we're speaking of the false writings. And those are typically the books that are written after the completion of the New Testament. So there's the Gospel according to St. Thomas. There's a go- the gospel according to Bartholomew. Those, those were never recognized uh, by the body of Christ as being inspired. Um, men do not determine the canon of Scripture. All they do is recognize it. So God is the one who makes a book canonical, who makes it part of the word canon comes from a Latin word that means a measuring stick. So God has created a measuring stick for all truth. And so there are books that were written between the Testaments that are helpful. In fact, if you go to the first edition of the 1611 King James Bible, they included the apoc—excuse me—the apocryphal books, those books written between the Old and the New Testaments. And the reason they did is written in the preface of the 1611 King James. And by the way, there are two editions of the 1611. There's the 1611a and the 1611b. And again, those um, those designations go back to after they had completed the first edition of the King James, they were getting more manuscript evidence. For instance, when they came to the end of the Revelation, the last five or six verses, they did not even have a Greek manuscript on. And so what they did is they took the Latin manuscript that Jerome had done in the fourth century, and they translated the Latin on into English, but they weren't working from a Greek manuscript. They were working one language removed and that's why it might read just a little bit different in the King James. So they started getting more manuscripts and they, and they even write in the old preface of the King James. And when the 400th anniversary came in 1711, uh, in, in, excuse me, in 2011, they created uh, Bibles that had uh, the preface that was written in it. And it's really helpful to read. And they themselves acknowledge that because the church had for a long time been away from the original languages, that they recognized that there are certain words that they had difficulty translating. So for instance, I was just uh, thinking about this the other day in Isaiah 14, for instance, you take the word um, we, we read the word Lucifer um, the the Hebrew of the translation committee that did the 1611 version was a little uncertain how to translate the Hebrew word that is referred to as shining one or sun of the morning, depending on your, your translation, because their Hebrew was limited. They were bringing in rabbis who weren't even believers and trying to discern the meaning of different Hebrew words. And so what they did with that is they just took Jerome's take on it. And so he translated the Hebrew lucifere, and it came, and they just transliterated it directly into English as as Lucifer. Um, So with that all said, there are marks for canonicity. And certainly there are questions like, was this book written by a prophet or a man of God? And, and God gave us a test in, in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 18.22, of what a true prophet would look like. You know, was this man of God confirmed by an act of God? Uh, did he have the marks that he was truly called of the Lord? Did the writing that he wrote coincide with previous revelation that was given by God? Um, does the writing that he writes have a life changing effect in producing godly living? And so there are things like that. And I have a course on bibliology and I go through the tests of canonicity. And so that's online at search And you might want to um, go to the section of the course. There's over 500 pages of note-taking outlines that I produce for our people on Wednesday night at in our Institute of biblical studies but there is a section that deals with how we got our bible and why do we have the number of books that we have whereas the catholic church has even more and the orthodox church has even more than we do so for instance i am teaching chapter by chapter and verse by verse the book of daniel there are 12 chapters in my book in the catholic bible there are 14 chapters to the book of daniel now what they did is they took two apocryphal books And I think rather dishonestly, they added them and made the 13th and 14th chapters of the book of Daniel, though they were separate and distinct books. And so uh, in the Orthodox Bible, there's 151 Psalms. There's 150 in my Bible. So why? You know, and so what were the tests of canonicity? And was something driving that? I think so. So for instance, in Catholicism, where they have a whole system known as purgatory and prayer for the dead, you can't find that in the Old Testament books. Uh, you can't find it in the 39 books of the Old Testament, nor in the 27 books of the New Testament. Ah, but you can find it in books like First and Second Maccabees, where it talks about prayer for the dead. Well, that contradicts previous revelation. Yet the King James writers were willing to put those uh, apocryphal books in their first Bible, not because they believed they were inspired, because they did not, but because they said in spite of some of the theological differences that are found in these books, uh, there is certain, certainly good, helpful information contained in them that describes some of the historical events that took place between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the coming of Christ, and the writing of Matthew in the New Testament. And so it did shed a lot of light and helpful. With the book of Enoch, um, no, it was not inspired by God. Now, some would say, well, he qu- he quotes the book of Enoch in the book of Jude. No, he doesn't. That that's an assumption on their part, that he is quoting the book of Enoch that's not to say that there aren't things written in the book of Enoch that are true there are things that are written in the apocryphal books that are true why because they match sometimes word for word what God wrote in the previous 39 books of the Old Testament the Tanakh as the Jews call it Tanakh is an acronym for Torah the first five books Nephaim, the prophets and the Ketuvim the wisdom literature and so which came first the chicken or the egg when he quotes the book of Enoch and the book of Jude. Well, it was either an oral tradition that had passed down for centuries that Enoch in his book, whoever Enoch is, it's not obviously the Enoch that we read in the Bible, but um, that it uh, ended up being recorded uh, as true, this oral tradition, or maybe it came by direct revelation uh, to uh, Jude as he wrote it. In either case, it becomes a true statement. So if God were to quote an apocryphal book, and I don't think he's quoting an apocryphal book. He he doesn't say the book of Enoch says. I think what he's doing is he takes this oral tradition that the Jews had known for centuries, and he ends up codifying it and saying that oral tradition is actually true. It is so true, I'm going to include it in the canon of Scripture. So I wouldn't necessarily say it would be a sin to read the apocryphal books. I've read most of them myself, but I, and we did it in seminary. I had to read the gospel according to St. Thomas that about made me throw up by the time I was done. But at least, you know, what kind of heresies sometimes they are propagating in putting forth before people. But the best thing to do is to really read the Bible itself because that's what's going to change your life and equip you to make a defense for the hope that's within you.
0: All right. I think we've got time for one more quick question. I heard your sermon on Daniel 9, Kelly from Bluffton writes. In it, you discuss Jesus is said to come back, will be in Jerusalem and reign for a thousand years. Not a literal number. I'd done a study on the book of Revelation in which G.K. Beale indicates that we are living now in a thousand years and that Jesus is ruling now. In his kingdom which is spiritual i guess i'm trying to understand in a deeper way but there's contrast to your and his interpretation by the way we are currently in the mountains of northern georgia during hurricane matthew well i hope they're back and safe
1: well uh it, it's a good question um one i i didn't say that the word of the number of thousand was symbolic and so if you thought that's what i said you go back and listen to the sermon but uh that's that's not what i said that's a literal number now the concept of the kingdom is taught in the old testament that god will have a kingdom where he will literally rule and reign upon the earth however the um the length of the kingdom is something that is taught in the new testament alone in fact this will become an issue when we come and study the book of revelation because sometimes, and I'll go through this, uh, certainly in my introductory sermon when we come to the book of Revelation, because there are, there are people who come up with some really different kinds of interpretation, such as the man you just quoted. With that said, um, how do they do this? Because of the way they interpret scripture. So there's what we call the idealist view or the spiritual view, where they say that the book of Revelation is basically a set of ideal principles Uh, picturing this, you know, struggle between good and evil. And so they allegorized the text. And Augustine was popular for doing this. And what was interesting is some of these guys who did this, they didn't interpret the rest of the Bible that way. But when it came to prophetic literature, they allegorized it. And look, unless the Bible says something is specifically an allegory, then to interpret it as an allegory is to misinterpret it. Uh, Another uh, view is what's called the preterist view. And the word preterist is from a Latin word that means past. And so they say that, you know, all of the events in Revelation have already taken place. And there are full preterists that make a very small minority within preterism. And there's partial preterists. Full preterists say all of the book of Revelation, even the second coming, has already taken place. And we're already in the eternal state. It's just stupid. Um, partial preterists they argue that most of revelation with the exception of the physical actual return of christ from heaven have taken place there's real problems to that view uh, it's not consistent with how to interpret the scripture you end up spiritualizing allegorizing a lot of texts but you've got people like r.c sproul and hank Hanegraaff. i think he calls himself the bible answer man that interpret revelation in that way The man that you're quoting, he's taking what's called the historicist view, and that teaches that the prophecies found in Revelation have been fulfilled sometime during the past 2,000 years. And so it's kind of an interesting approach, and you have to have a pretty vivid imagination to interpret the Scripture that way. So, yeah, we're we're in the millennial reign of Christ. Well, I hope not. Um, But we'll cover all these things in depth when we come to our study of the book of Revelation. We're out of time today. Glad you could join us. Walk with Christ, will you?